This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Oh, it's you. You nearly scared the life out of me, you know? Why, it must be nearly three in the morning. What are you doing out here? Come now, put that thing down. You and I both know that you'd never shoot. Okay, okay. What is it you want? If it's money, I don't have nearly as much as you'd imagine. But I can find a way. Look, I know I'm no angel, but this is going a bit far, don't you think? Perhaps you and I can come to some agreement. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the murder of Jocelyn Hay, the 22nd Earl of Errol. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Jocelyn Hay lived his life in the lap of luxury during the early years of the 20th century. But his comfortable life didn't stop him from meeting a grisly end at only 39 years old. As we discussed last episode, Hay was a British nobleman, most famous for his womanizing and wild alcohol and drug-fueled sex parties in the Aberdare Mountain regions of Kenya. This region was called the Happy Valley, and it was home to all sorts of English nobility, aristocrats, and socialites who wanted to free themselves from the uptight shackles of high society in the 1920s and 30s. In the Happy Valley, anything was fair game. From drugs like cocaine and heroin to parties involving wife-swapping, cuckoldry, and polyamory, Happy Valley was advertised as the place where the party never ended. But not everything was as happy as it seemed on the surface. Brewing beneath the glamorous exteriors of the rich and famous was a pot of resentment, jealousy, and greed. And it all boiled over on the morning of January 24th, 1941, when Jocelyn Hay, the life of every party, was shot dead in his car on a lonely road just outside of Nairobi. 
And with his death, the golden era of the Happy Valley came to a close. Before we go any further into the suspects in Hayes' murder, let's recap the facts as we know them. On the night of January 23, 1941, Jocelyn Hay and a few of the Happy Valley elite were drinking and dining at the Muthaiga Country Club in Nairobi. The two most prominent dinner guests were Sir Jock Delves Broughton and his wife Diana. While Jock was an aging veteran with a penchant for drinks and gambling, Diana was young, vivacious, and Hayes' latest flame. After dinner and drinks, Hay and Diana wanted to go dancing at another club a few miles away. Jock declined to go with them and returned to his home while Hay and Diana left in Hayes' Buick. Hay dropped Diana back off at her home around 2.30 in the morning on the 24th and then drove off alone back to his estate. According to Diana, the last words the two ever said to each other were, Darling, please drive carefully. Carefully, darling, but not slowly. Hay was found dead half an hour later by a milkman beginning his early morning rounds. The car was two and a half miles away from the Broughton house on an empty crossroads with no apparent eyewitnesses present. Hay was crouched under the steering wheel of the car, dead from a single point-blank gunshot wound to the temple. There was little sign of a struggle. There was also no sign of any tire tracks leading to or from the scene, other than the ones from Hay's Buick. When the milkman found Hay's body, the car was still running, and Hay's feet were positioned over the brake and the clutch. A lot of assumptions can be made just from the circumstances in which Hay was found. The lack of a struggle implies that either Hay knew his attacker and didn't expect them to shoot, or that he was caught completely by surprise. No other sets of tires means that this couldn't have been a drive-by. The killer would have had to have been walking the road outside or in the car with Hay. Because of the proximity to his house, immediate suspicion for the murder fell on Hay's friend and the husband of his latest mistress, Sir Jock Delves Broughton. This began a rampant outbreak of rumors and finger-pointing, causing the carefree nature of the valley to dissipate in favor of distrust and suspicion. The rumors and facts began to mix together and the truth became so blurred that no murderer was ever brought to justice. To this day, the murder remains unsolved. But it certainly wasn't for lack of suspects. As well-respected as Hay was, he wasn't particularly well-liked by his peers. He openly had affairs with married women, often right in front of their husbands. And because of the unspoken rule of free love within the Happy Valley, there wasn't much the husbands could do about Hay's actions but complain. Hay was also an unabashed racist, mistreating his large staff of black Kenyans and often withholding their paychecks for frivolous reasons. Most of the time, this was just to cover up the fact that Hay was usually in debt and couldn't afford his servants, but needed to keep up appearances of wealth. He was also a known sympathizer of the Nazi party. While he didn't actively participate in the early days of World War II, He did join the British Union of Fascists in 1934 and made his political leanings very clear to friends and family. So the question became, who didn't want to kill Jocelyn Hay? Although there were plenty of people who had the motive, not many had the means and the opportunity. Today, we're going to focus 
on three major suspects, Jacques Delves Broughton, his wife Diana Broughton, and Alice Dijonze, one of Hay's former lovers. Although they all knew Hay very well, all three of these suspects had very different reasons to want him dead. First, let's take a look at the prime suspect, Jacques Delves Broughton. Strangely enough, although he was the person most focused on by investigators at the time, he may have actually had the weakest motive of all. As we discussed in our last episode, Jock knew that Hay was sleeping with his wife Diana, and he had apparently given the two his blessing to continue their affair. Jock, at age 57, was 30 years older than his wife Diana and almost 20 years older than Hay. He even promised Diana that he would grant her a divorce and give her an allowance for the first seven years following their separation. So there really was no downside to Diana courting Hay, and seemingly no hard feelings from Jock. Whether or not Jock's generosity was sincere, he did get along well with Hay, even toasting to him at the Muthaiga Country Club on the last night of Hay's life. To my dearest Diana, and to her dearest Jocelyn, here, here. It may seem strange that Jock was so unperturbed by his wife's obvious infidelity, but it's important to remember that sexual promiscuity was a common and accepted part of the Happy Valley lifestyle. Well, there are other reasons to doubt Jock's involvement as well. He was older and had a limp from an injury that made it difficult for him to walk. Considering Hay's body was found in his car a full two and a half miles away from the Broughton's home, it would have been impossible for Jock to catch up on foot. And since there were no other tire tracks leading to or from the scene, he couldn't have followed Hay by car. Well, there is a vague possibility that Jock could have hidden in the back seat of Hay's car before he decided to strike. However, the only way he could have left his house undetected by both Hay and Diana would have been to crawl out of a second-story window and down a drain pipe in the back of the house. Again, a very unlikely situation for a 57-year-old with a limp. Agreed. In addition to the limp, Jock had also developed arthritis in his hands. While he had been a great shot back in his army days, friends noted that his hands often shook while out at the shooting range. So it would have been difficult for him to have made the clean shot that killed Hay. Have you made your survey of the crime scene? I have. Very good. And what are your findings? Look here. The car was driven off the side of the road, and although we turned off the engine, it had still been running when the body was found. Do you see how the body is positioned? It's crumpled under the wheel well, almost as in a crouching position. His foot is resting just above the pedals, as if he made to drive away, but couldn't react in time. And the cause of death? We'll let the coroner make his confirmations, but I believe it to be a single gunshot wound just here, above the left ear. From the left, you say? So he was shot by a passenger? That's the most likely answer. What of the black markings surrounding the ear? Gunpowder. He was shot at very close range. For a shot like that, you'd almost expect there to be more blood. My thoughts exactly. No spatter on the driver's side window, very little on the upholstery. I'd say this is one of the most bloodless shootings I've ever seen. The killer knew what he was doing, devoid of all emotion. An excellent shot. A clean shot, a lack of a scuffle, and a steady hand. 
Well, it doesn't sound much like the Jock Broughton we've been hearing about, does it? No, it doesn't. But even after the evidence was taken into account, he was still the first suspect police brought in, thanks to the love triangle between Hay and his wife. Could the rumors of such an affair be enough for a conviction? Well, on the surface, it seemed like Jock Broughton was not only complacent about the affair, but actively supported it. But as investigators dug deeper, a few secrets came to light that eventually led to Broughton's demise. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now back to the story. On January 24, 1941, Jocelyn Hayes' killer had been quick, ruthless, and steady-handed. But Jock Dells Broughton was an older man with a history of injury and arthritic hands. Not exactly a match for the detective's prime suspect. No, not exactly. But with all the evidence at the crime scene in mind, well, let's discuss what made the police suspicious of Jock. Well, there was the confusion over whether or not Jock really wanted his wife sleeping with another man. And along with his wife, Diana... Jock was one of the last two people to ever see Hay alive. There were also reports that Jock had made a large bonfire the next morning, burning clothes and possibly the murder weapon. Well, that's definitely suspicious behavior. And it's true that the gun used to kill Hay was never found. But still, all the evidence against Jock was circumstantial. There was nothing specific to tie him to the actual crime scene. There just wasn't enough for the prosecution to go on, and Jock was eventually acquitted. Please state your name for the record. Sir Henry John Dells Broughton, most referred to me as Jock. Sir Broughton, can you tell me where you were on the night of January 23rd, 1941? I was with my wife at the Muthaiga Country Club in Nairobi, then retired home for the evening shortly thereafter. Jocelyn Hay was with you at the country club that night, correct? Correct. Did he leave the country club with you that night? No, he left with my wife, Diana. I believe they were to go dancing, I was too tired to join them, and drove home to get some rest. We'll return to that night in a moment, but before that, would you mind telling me what you did when you woke up the next morning? I don't exactly recall. It wasn't anything out of the usual. I believe I had breakfast in the sunroom, perhaps read the paper. It wasn't until later that we heard about poor old Joss. Can you remember anything else about that morning? No, I didn't think much about it at the time. Your neighbor, Juanita Carberry, said she saw you building a bonfire the very same morning Jocelyn Hay was found dead. Can you confirm or deny the statement? Ah, yes. I may have done so that day. I often use them to burn weeds and scrap wood in the dry months and stay nearby to make sure it doesn't spread. Did you ever burn anything other than scrap wood? Occasionally. Miss Carberry said she saw you burn a pile of clothes and a pair of shoes that morning. No, that doesn't sound right. We wouldn't burn clothing. Those sorts of things can be passed down to the help. So Miss Carberry was lying when she said you were burning clothing? Uh, She may have been mistaken. She seemed confident in what she saw. She's a 15-year-old girl. Girls are confident of all kind of silly notions at that age. Sir Broughton, are you aware that disposal of evidence is, in itself, a crime? Is it illegal to build a bonfire on one's own property? Even if I had burned my clothes, what of it? What am I on trial for, exactly? Order! Order! As we mentioned last episode, the detail that really made people believe that Jock was the murderer was the fact that he committed suicide nearly two years after Hay's death. 
Those that assumed Jock had gotten away with murder took his death as a confession, that the guilt of killing Hay had been too much for him to bear. As tempting as that is to believe, it doesn't tell the whole story. Right. After Hay's death, Jock was shunned from Happy Valley, turned away by Hay's friends that believed that he belonged in prison. His wife Diana divorced him as well, and he was forced to return to England alone. There, the taint of scandal was inescapable. He was no longer welcome anywhere in high society. Life as he knew it had changed forever. And it's not impossible to believe that his death was motivated by something other than guilt. Jock was completely ostracized from his friends, his family, and everyone he knew and loved. There was nowhere else for him to turn. So he turned to a bottle of morphine one last time. So, maybe police had the wrong guy. But if Jock didn't kill Jocelyn Hay, who's the next most likely suspect? Well, it seems the most obvious would be Jock's wife, Diana. She was the last one to see him alive, and she had spent most of the night with him just before his death. But she was his mistress. Did she have a real motive to kill him? According to friends of Hay and the Broughtons, Diana didn't just want to leave her husband. She wanted to marry Hay. But Hay didn't want another wife. He was perfectly fine with keeping Diana as his mistress. So maybe this was a revenge killing? If I can't have you, no one can? Exactly. According to some rumors, Hay and Diana had had a big fight on the night of Hay's death. Now, darling, why have we retired to the ladies' powder room? Couldn't keep your hands off me for one more second, eh? (laughs) No, it's not that. Jocelyn... I have something very important to tell you. Oh, I don't like that look one bit. Listen, if you're pregnant, the baby belongs to Jock. Don't be ridiculous. That's not what I wanted to tell you. So? Out with it then, woman. It is about Jock. Do you remember how he agreed to pay me an allowance should I ever find a new lover? For seven years, yes. Quite generous of the old chap. Well... With the war on, you see, he's come up on a bit of a tight spot. He hasn't got the funds. He won't be able to pay me, us, I mean, when we make our new life together. We'll have to go it alone. That's a real shame. I liked you, too. What do you mean? Well, it's over, isn't it? The jig is up. I've had a swell time, Diana, I really have, but I have debts to pay. It's time to move on. You don't want to stay together? There's no life for us to be found in the poorhouse, my sweet. But I've already told Jock it was over between us. What am I to do now? Well, you should have told me first. I don't have anything to do with the rest. You utter pig. Was it only ever about the money? No, no. It was about the sex, darling. But money never hurt. I suppose I'll leave you two to figure out the rest. You'll pay for this, Jocelyn Hay. My dear, I'm afraid I already have. If this really happened, it would have put a woman like Diana in an impossible position. Either she'd be forced to stay in a loveless marriage, or try to patch things up with Hay and live without the comfortable income she had been accustomed to. Well, this conflict sounds like a potential motive for murder. Unfortunately, we have no way of confirming whether or not this rumor is true, and it contradicts the behavior of Hay and the Broughtons at the Mathiga Country Club on the night of Hay's death. 
According to Jock, Diana, and various other members of the Happy Valley set who had seen them at the country club, Jock had been happy for the young couple, or at least had no plans to renege on the prenuptial agreement. So maybe Diana's out of the picture as well? Or were there any other possible suspects? Well, thanks to his philandering ways, Hay had a lot of jilted ex-lovers whose jealousy might have pushed them over the edge. One lover in particular stands out. And her story is outlandish, even by Happy Valley standards. Of all of Jocelyn Hay's lovers, Alice DeJonze was perhaps the one with the most flair for the dramatic. Which, considering the company he used to keep, is really saying something. DeJonze, born Alice Silverthorne in 1899, was an American heiress and daughter of a wealthy textile magnate. When she was 22, her father pulled some strings to send her to France to work under a Parisian fashion designer. However, her passion wasn't so much in design as it was in spending a lot of effort to look effortlessly chic. It wasn't long before she met and started wooing a French count by the name of Frédéric de Janze. It was a whirlwind romance. Alice and Frédéric met in early September 1921 and were married three weeks later on September 21st. You don't regret it, do you, Monchou? Never in a million years, Frédéric, darling. Marrying you was the best decision I ever made. Do you have regrets? Uh... Perhaps there is one. Oh? Your name, Silverthorn. It is like honey on the tongue. Sweet, yet dangerous. Delicate, yet deadly. The serpent hiding under the rose. A title truly befitting of a woman such as yourself. It is unfortunate that our marriage had to take that name away from you. Oh, Frederick. I must admit, Silverthorn was a grand title, but... I think there is one that suits me more. And what is that? Comtesse. In 1925, the Dijonzes met Jocelyn Hay and his first wife, Adina Sackville, at a party in France, and Hay invited the two of them to visit Happy Valley. The Dijonzes accepted the invitation and fell in love with the hedonistic lifestyle of the Kenyan Aberdares at first sight. Within a year, they had moved to Africa themselves, becoming the Hayes' next-door neighbors. So it was perhaps inevitable that Alice DeJonze became one of Jocelyn Hayes' many lovers. After all, she checked all the prerequisite boxes for a Hay mistress. Pedigreed, eccentric, rich, and most of all, married. Hay and DeJonze carried on their affair more or less in full view of their respective spouses. And while Sackville was used to sharing her husband... Frederick chose instead to distract himself with lion hunting and other various adventurous activities Kenya had to offer. While Alice had felt confined in France, in Kenya, she was dazzled by her new array of options. She now had access to the drugs and promiscuous sex that high society frowned upon. But her taste for the wild and strange didn't end there. She had always been an admirer of animals and kept several exotic pets— Notably, she had owned a black panther she kept on a silver leash and a lion cub that remained at her estate until it outgrew her enclosure. Feed it what? Zebras, Madame de Jeanze. At least one a week, then up to two as it gets older. But that's terrible. Those poor zebras. It's natural, Madame. 
It's what it would eat in the wild. It's barbaric. It's a lion. Life in the Happy Valley was ideal for Alice de Jeanze. She loved the excitement and drama of it all. She created love triangles wherever she could, embracing the role of the mistress just as readily as the role of the wife. But what makes her different from Jocelyn Hayes' dozens of other mistresses? What makes her a suspect in his murder? Oh, well, for one thing, Dejanze was no stranger to crimes of passion. Her claim to infamy, other than her association with Jocelyn Hay, was her role in the Guerre de Nord incident. While she was living with her husband and flirting with Jocelyn Hay, Alice Dejanze was also pursuing another man, Raymond de Trefort. Her on-again, off-again affair with de Trefort was more sordid than her affair with Hay, and she even thought about eloping with him across the plains of Kenya in the middle of the night. They never did quite elope, although they eventually rented out a small apartment together back in Paris. This plan to live together ended up doing more harm to the lovers than good, putting their fraught relationship through a crucible it was too weak to handle. They'd only been in the Paris apartment about five months before things truly took a turn for the worse. On March 25, 1927, de Trefort was bound for London, leaving de Janze alone in Paris. Earlier that morning, he had told her that he wouldn't be able to marry her, as his strict Catholic family had threatened to disinherit him if he did. This was too much for de Janze, who immediately went out to buy a pearl-handled revolver before meeting de Trefort at his private compartment at the Guerre de Nord train station. Alice, Manchu, please. You're being irrational. You know I didn't plan to hurt you. You didn't plan to love me, either. You think of no one but yourself. You know that isn't true. I told you my reasons. Then you are a contemptible coward. Are your parents really so fearsome that you would choose them over me? It's not a matter of choice. It's a matter of inheritance. I would lose my money, my title, everything. Is that really what you want? I have enough money for us both. And besides, I would live like a beggar if it meant that I could live with you. That isn't true and you know it. You have a lifestyle to maintain. You think me vain? I think poverty would only cage you, as would marriage. You deserve to be free. I deserve you. Alice, where'd you get that gun? It doesn't matter. All that matters is that we will remain together one way or another. Think about what you're doing. I have thought about it. I do nothing but think all day. I think of the lies you've told me, of the promises you've broken, of the future you'll never let us begin. The train is about to leave. Then it shall deliver our bodies to London. Alice, no! Frederic? No, 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 my love. What? Why did you run at me? I, I didn't mean I promised. Oh, I didn't mean it. I swear I didn't mean it. After shooting de Trefort in the chest, puncturing his lung, de Janze then turned the gun on herself, hitting her stomach. When the conductor arrived in the compartment to investigate the gunshots, he saw a bloody de Trefort crumpled on the floor, and de Janze standing opposite him with a revolver held in her shaking hand. She only managed to get out one sentence before she collapsed herself. I did it. The drama of the shooting was something only a woman like Dejanze could engineer. But did the shocking act really give her what she wanted? 
And could the fact that she shot one lover have meant that she also murdered Jocelyn Hay? We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to our story. In exploring Jocelyn Hay's gruesome murder, we must return to the first time as Mistress Alice DeJonze shot a lover in 1927. Onlookers and reporters alike went wild with speculation after DeJonze shot Raymond de Trafort in the chest at the Gare du Nord train station in Paris. The wealthy couple had been notorious enough to make headlines before the shooting, and their infamy only grew as details of the Gare du Nord incident leaked to the press. What turned this beautiful heiress into a mad murderess? Was Gare du Nord's shooting provoked by de Trefort's secret love child? More on page four. In reality, the aftermath of the shooting was not quite as dire as initial reports had made it out to seem. The two were rushed to a nearby hospital where, shockingly, despite their injuries, both de Trefort and de Jeanze survived. De Jeanze's stomach wound turned out to be the less serious of the injuries, while de Trefort remained in critical condition for several days. Apparently, de Jeanze had never meant to kill him, only wound him dramatically. When she heard he might not survive her attack, she began screaming and crying in her hospital bed. No! He must live! I want him to live! After his recovery, de Trefort declined to press charges, claiming that his lover had only meant to kill herself before he intervened. The court agreed with de Trefort, thanks to his testimony and character witnesses provided by de Jeanze's well-connected friends and family. In the end, she was only charged with assault, fined 100 francs, less than $60 in today's currency, and immediately released. Later, she was even given a complete pardon by the French president, who returned her 100 francs. It was determined that she was completely blameless as the shooting was a true crime of passion. Although her money, fame, and connections certainly helped that case. Perhaps the strangest thing about the Guerre du Nord incident was how it apparently brought de Trefort and de Jeanze together. They got back together a year after the shooting and were married in February of 1932. A wedded bliss didn't last long for the tempestuous couple, however, and de Jeanze had already begun filing for divorce by November of that year. She seemed to change her mind about the divorce several times before finally going through with it in 1937. Not exactly a love story for the ages. Mm, not exactly, no. So, Dijonze had shot a lover before and was quite possibly violent and unstable enough to have killed Jocelyn Hay. But did she have the motive? Although she had several lovers at the time she was seeing Hay, she did seem unhealthily infatuated with him. Like her pet lion... Jeanze was in love with the chase, never happy with a man once she had married him, but constantly pursuing men who would never love her back. Hay was even less interested in marrying Jeanze than he was in marrying Diana Broughton. He turned her down several times, which only seemed to make her more interested. In fact, she loved him most of all after he had died. While visiting Hay's body in the mortuary, she gave his corpse a passionate kiss and said... Now you're mine forever. Wow. Ah, If she was the real killer, she might have shot Hay while thinking it would have the same effect as shooting de Trefort. An ultimately non-fatal injury and a dramatic declaration of passion. But if that was the case, why would she shoot him point-blank in the head? 
That was obviously going to be fatal. Maybe she really did want to get back at Hay. He had turned her down so many times. She wanted to make sure that he would never spurn her advances again. In her words, he'd be hers forever in death. Well, unfortunately, there is not any concrete evidence that Dejanze was the killer. Well, there's not a whole lot of evidence that was left at the crime scene in general. But it's possible Dejanze could have been following Hay or waited for him on his way home and asked for a ride before climbing in the car and shooting him. Dejanze did have an alibi. But the source of this alibi seems a little suspicious. Well, one of Dejanze's lovers, a man named Dickie Pembroke, claimed that he had been in her bed that night, but he was also madly in love with her and easily could have lied on the stand. He was also the only person who vouched for her whereabouts. Okay, okay, I'm coming. Hold your horses. Dickie? Alice! Alice, what are you doing here at this hour? Are you going to let me in? Uh, well, yes, of course, but... Is anyone else home? Just to help, but they're in the house out back. What's going on? It's almost four in the morning. I is it? I hadn't checked. I need to use your powder room. Alice, sweetheart, take a breath. You need to tell me what's happened. Dickie, you'd do anything for me, right? Alice, you know how I feel about you. Of course I would. I... I don't know when the police will be coming for me, but when they do, you must tell them I was here all night with you. I came here just before midnight, and we slept soundly in your bed. Can you do that? Can you tell them? What did you do? It doesn't matter. The less you know, the better. Oh, Dickie, you'd never betray me, would you? You'd never do something so horrible to me. I love you, Alice. It kills me sometimes, but I do love you. I'll tell them you were here. You know I will. Uh, oh, thank you. Dickie, thank you. It means the world to me. It really does. I need to get back to bed. You can join me if you like. We'll talk more in the morning. All right. Good night, Dickie. Good night, Alice. So her alibi definitely had some wiggle room. Now, it's also important to note that Dejanze might have confessed to the crime in one of several suicide notes she left before her death later in September of 1941, just eight months after Hayes' death. She left five notes, one for each of her daughters, one for the police, one for Dickie Pembroke, and the last was a general note. Out of respect for Alice's privacy, the Dijonze family made sure that the content of these notes was never officially let out to the public. Still, a friend of Dijonze, who read the letters, reported that Alice had fully confessed to the murder. Well, since Dijonze also left notes for the police and Dickie Pembroke, her alibi and a possible accomplice, it's easy to speculate that her notes might have contained a confession, but there's no way for us to know for sure. If her note to police did actually contain a confession, there was nothing to be done about it. According to the same family friend who read the suicide note, the letters were kept by the family and never given to the police. It's unclear why the letters were never taken by police. It's common practice for detectives to take suicide notes as evidence until the investigation has confirmed the death is not a homicide. Perhaps the investigation was less thorough 
or Dejanze's confession was deemed unreliable for whatever reason. Well, she had always been fairly unstable and prone to dramatics, but still, you would think that her confession would at least merit a little more investigation. However, without more information on the content of the notes or the police investigation, all we can do is speculate. If Dejanze was the killer, her secret followed her to the grave. I think it's very interesting that Jock's suicide in 1942 was seen as a confession of his guilt, while Dejanze's suicide 15 months earlier wasn't taken in the same way. Yeah, yeah it might have been a case of people seeing what they wanted to see. The court of public opinion had already convicted Jock Dells Broughton, and not even his acquittal could change their minds. Dejanze, the spurned mistress, wasn't as obvious a choice as the cuckolded husband, so her apparent confession escaped notice at the time. Either way, this oversight had real tragic consequences down the line for Jock Delves Broughton. While we've discussed some of the more obvious suspects for the death of Jocelyn Hay, there's one theory that we'd be remiss if we didn't mention. That's right. Hay's death might not have been a murder at all but rather a political assassination. Well, this theory is not as crazy as it might sound. As we mentioned earlier, Hay was a signed member of the British Union of Fascists and, during the outbreak of World War II, took a position as Great Britain's military secretary for East Africa. That might have been enough to get the attention of spy agencies like Britain's MI6. It would do England no good to have a known fascist sympathizer stationed in Kenya and that fact might have made him a target. This theory goes so far as to assert that Jock and Diana Broughton were actually MI6 agents sent to spy on Hay, or even take him out themselves. Are there any orders, sir? Your mission has been a success so far. You've managed to get quite close to Lord Hay in a short amount of time. Lord Hay has a penchant for breaking apart couples. I thought our age difference might make things too obvious, but he took the bait immediately. I don't believe he has the slightest suspicion that we've been reporting on his actions and his whereabouts for the past year. Very good. You two have done quite well. However, from your reports, it seems clear that Lord Hay is a threat to our interests in Kenya. As military secretary, he is the only thing standing between Italian-held African territories and a complete invasion of East Africa. And we cannot let an avowed fascist be our last hope against an Axis takeover of the continent. I agree with you entirely. I've gotten word from the Crown that you are authorized to dispatch of Lord Hay by any means necessary. Now that you have gained his trust, it will be much easier for the two of you to plan a way to get rid of him. What would you suggest, sir? I trust your judgment in this matter. Perhaps a jealous murder, perhaps a tragic accident. Whatever you need to do will have the full support of MI6. Understood. Good luck, and God save the King. As interesting as this theory may be, it's all speculation. Diana lived to be 74 years old, long past the end of the Second World War, and never mentioned anything of the sort. That, or she kept her involvement very secret. We can only guess at the logistics today. If she and Jock were working together, he might have covered for her when he said she had been dropped off at home by Hay at 2.30 that night. That way, she could have stayed with Hay in the car and shot him when they were far enough away from any other potential witnesses. Or maybe she had directed Hay to an intersection where another MI6 agent was stationed to carry out the murder for them. And maybe it was even Jock. 
who could have hid in the car while Diana distracted Hay at the house. Mm. All we have is speculation on what could have happened. There's no physical evidence to back up the MI6 theory. If there were any truth to it, Diana and Jock both took that knowledge to the grave. So, Carter, what do you think? Was Jocelyn Hay killed by a jilted lover, a jealous husband, or an international spy conglomerate? Hmm. Well, we might never know the answer for sure, but for my money, I think that the most obvious answer is the right one. Sir Jock Dells Broughton. Well, while it's true his age and injuries would have made the murder difficult, I think it's possible for him to have snuck inside Hay's car, waited for him to get out into a deserted section of road, and shot him point-blank in the head. Plus, that bonfire Jock burned the next day would have been the perfect way to get rid of evidence. It's just too convenient to be a coincidence. Well, while I agree it's possible for the killer to have been Jock, I think he just had too weak of a motive. After looking at all the facts, I'm leaning towards Alice Dejanze as the killer. She almost killed another one of her lovers in a similar fashion years earlier. She was unhealthily obsessed with Hay, and her alibi was incredibly weak. I think she was overlooked as a suspect at the time. Well, either way, the story of Jocelyn Hay is a very strange one that sheds light into the world of sex and drugs of the 1930s that we rarely get to see outside of F. Scott Fitzgerald novels. Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jordan Lyric and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. <laughs> <laughs>